Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Very well, gentlemen. We are about to brave the storm in a skiff made of paper. And how it shall end... God only knows. I don't know how it shall end. But this, this was our beginning. July 4th, 1776. This was the moment that we became we. About a month earlier, Richard Henry Lee of Virginia read the following resolution before the Continental Congress. Quote, that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is, and ought to be, totally dissolved. A committee of five was appointed to draft a statement for the world to declare the reason for such an action. Lee's resolution was debated and adopted by 12 of the 13 colonies on July 2nd, 1776. New York abstained. And on the 4th, the declaration was adopted. It was sent to a young Irish immigrant, John Dunlap, official printer of the Congress, to be turned into about 200 broadsides to be sent around the colonies. 26 of these, called the Dunlap broadsides, are known to exist today. These weren't printed to sit in glass cases or hang on the walls of state. These were printed to be read out loud. To assemblies, to committees, on town hall steps. To the commanders and troops who had already been at war for over a year. Copies were made for the colonists in German and French. And one Dunlop broadside was put on a ship to England, where it would be read by King George himself. So whether we're celebrating the successes or examining the flaws of this great democratic experiment, this was the moment that they became our successes, our flaws. This is the reason I'm a little nervous investigating our literal founding document. And there's one more reason that I hesitate to mention. When I'm trying to do a levels check for a guest on this very show, instead of asking them the industry standard question, which is, what did you have for breakfast? I really like to ask, what is the movie that you watched more 
than any other in your youth. Did you have a tape that got played more than any other in your household? A video? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. What was it? Casablanca. <laughs> I only saw Casablanca for the first time last year. Are you serious? Yeah. It is the greatest movie ever made. It's incredible. It, it, and let's be honest, it is a major piece of propaganda. <laughs> That's Byron Williams. We'll hear from him a little later. He loved a major piece of propaganda, but so did I. Good God, what in hell are you waiting for? I've seen the movie, 1776, a musical about our founding fathers singing and dancing their way towards the signing of the Declaration of Independence hundreds, maybe even a thousand times. My childhood wish was to one day play Ben Franklin. Old Ben F. <laughs> Your childhood wish. Was just like I was born to play that part. So when working on this episode and I was able to get in contact with Daniel Allen, one of the top Declaration of Independence scholars in the world. I'm the James Bryant Conant University professor at Harvard. I'm a political philosopher. So I'm a kind of um, all-arounder Declaration of Independence person, history, text, the impact of it, and so forth. I held my breath and I asked her for her thoughts on the movie. Do you have any feelings about the film 1776 and its accuracy of depicting this situation? Oh, I'm embarrassed to say that's a, that's a yeah, I'm very embarrassed. <laughs> I still have not actually seen it. Oh, oh, Nick. I know. You sounded so nervous. I know. Of course she hasn't seen it. Cool people do not see it. Nobody's seen it. Well, I've seen it. After you made me see it. <laughs> Does anybody care? All right, I promise I will be more judicious about my use of clips from 1776, but a few sneak their way in. I'm Nick Capodice. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And today on Civics 101, we are exploring the greatest breakup letter of all time, the Declaration of Independence. What it says, what it doesn't say. To start, you should read it. It's not that long. It's short. It's only 1,337 words. That's Danielle Allen again. Yeah, and it had the biggest possible of jobs. It had the job of justifying one of the most consequential political decisions ever taken, the decision of the colonists to declare independence from Britain and formally undertake a revolution. And we might take this for granted now. There was no precedent for this. It's never been done before. No colony has ever broken from the parent stem in the history of the world. So think of that. You're trying to justify uh, the creation of a new nation. You're trying to justify a war, all in little more than 1,300 words. You don't do that with small ideas. You do that with big ideas. Big ideas like people have rights and the government should protect those rights? Yes, and the biggest of all, that if a government fails to do that, the people have a responsibility to fix it. Danielle called this a theory of revolution. So where do we even start? Well, there are four parts of the Declaration. There's a preamble, a statement of human rights, a long list of grievances, and then the action, Lee's resolution. We, therefore, are doing this. The question to answer for the Declaration is what on earth could justify steps of that magnitude? The rest of the Declaration is an answer to that question. So I think it's good to start at the end because that way you know what question the whole text is supposed to answer. 
How on earth could you possibly make the case that it's reasonable to just call yourself a new nation, that it's reasonable to declare yourself no longer loyal to, obedient to your king? If you're going to say that you're no longer beholden to the laws of your country, you better have a pretty good reason. There were good reasons, and there were many. There are 27 very specific grievances in the Declaration. These are acts of the king that demonstrate his tyranny and therefore justify revolution. Concord and Lexington, the first battles of the Revolutionary War, happened over a year before the Declaration had been written. But I want to take it back even further and start with civics teacher Cheryl Cook Callio, who boiled it all down to one sentence. No matter how hard they tried, the English were never going to look at them as being equals. Many people don't think about the salutary neglect that happened in the colonies uh, for the 150 years before we started to see the beginnings of unrest. What is salutary neglect? It was how England governed these colonies. It wanted access to their raw materials, but that is all they wanted. Nobody was enforcing trade laws. Nobody was mandating British rule. The colonies were pretty much left to govern themselves. They just ignored that the colonies even were there. And so you had this large, vast amount of land where people from Great Britain would come or people from England would come and recreate their lives. And some would liken the beginning of that period as being a uh, just a, a blank slate, this idea that you could go in and create a government. Of course, they did because they were three months away and 3,000 miles away um, from Parliament. And so they were very used to direct democracy. But then this system of salutary neglect is reversed in the 1750s when England needs a ton of money due to the Seven Years' War. This is a massive war and involves all the powers of Europe. And this extends to the British fighting the French who are allied with the native tribes. In the colonies, it's called the French and Indian War. So England starts to tax and England starts showing up. There is a whole kind of line of increasing hostilities that start happening. This is Emma Bray. She's the executive director at the American Independence Museum. The British start coming to the colonies. They're being quartered here. And it's not like today where military troops are on bases or have their own homes provided for them. They were being quartered within residence homes here in the colonies. We're getting taxed on goods that we're producing, raw goods that we're creating, giving to England, they then produce it, and then we're taxed on them coming back to us. Everything is now getting taxed. So it's not just your sugar, it's your paper, it's the stamp, it's everything, it's tea. It's all of these commodities that you need to live. And at a certain point, it just starts to become too much and people are starting to get fed up with it. Stamp Axe, Townsend Axe, Sugar Axe, Tea Axe. But it's more than just the money. There are stories of individuals radicalizing. One of the pieces of discontent was that colonial commissions were considered beneath any level of British commission. So if you were a colonel in the colonial army, you were still considered to be below any British commission uh, that was fighting the French and Indian War. Cheryl told us a documented story of one lieutenant colonel who wanted a British commission and was promised one by General Braddock, head of the British Army in the colonies. During a, a particularly bad battle, 
I mean, very fierce General Braddock, um, was killed. The lieutenant colonel steps up. He led uh, the surviving soldiers. Uh, he, his horse was shot out from under him twice. He's got musket balls in his jacket. Um, he has really become the epitome of what you think a good British Army officer would look like. And he saved the day for those people that were trying to get away because uh, many, many, many British uh, soldiers were killed during this battle. He thought this must be sufficient evidence to get that coveted British commission. So he traveled all the way to Boston and met with the acting general. For the troops in, in the colonies and asked for this commission and, and said, I was promised this by General Braddock and was pretty much laughed at. Maybe by now you figured out who this lieutenant colonel was. Uh, for me, that really was one of the scenes that caused George Washington to become radicalized. If you ask me what turned people in New England from mere rebels and protesters into wanting independence, I'd say Lexington and Concord. This is Woody Holton, history professor at USC. But if you ask me what turned white Southerners from merely protesting to wanting independence, the answer is this informal alliance that African Americans initiated with the British government. You know that uh, in South Carolina, where I live now, the, uh, the majority of the people were enslaved. In Virginia, uh, where Jefferson and Washington were, 40% of the people were enslaved. Enslaved Americans start seeing this battle between the groups that were later going to call loyalists and rebels. Enslaved Americans see that split among whites, and they say, you know, in this gap between one group of whites and another group of whites, that's an opportunity for us. And they literally go and knock on the door of the governor's palace in Colonial Williamsburg to tell the governor, you just give us our freedom and we'll help you win this war. And he initially turns them away, uh, as do other colonial governors, but they kept coming. And eventually, British officials, who had very few white supporters, started accepting these black supporters. And in fact, they issued emancipation proclamations, very similar to the one that Lincoln would issue, that infuriated Whites. One guy referred to it as aiming a dagger at our throats through the hands of our slaves. The Stamp Act was passed. The coercive acts were passed. Uh, you know, at one point, the colonial government tried to seat someone in Parliament, and they were refused. They sent an olive branch petition uh, trying to work things out. And the king responds by officially declaring the colonies in rebellion. Those who persist in their treason... The punishment shall be death by hanging. You introduced this as a breakup letter, Nick, but it sounds like a messy, bloody, drawn-out divorce. Yeah, you don't respect me. I've tried hard to make this work. We created a Continental Congress expressly to work with you, and you have done nothing. Enough. And we get to Lee's resolution and the formation of the Committee of Five to write. Buying a master mechanics tool set usually means high prices, higher interest rates, and who knows how many years of monthly payments. But at GearWrench, we don't believe that your tools should take years and years to pay for. So check out Mega Mod Master Sets, the master mechanics tool sets that deliver pro-quality tools, organized storage solutions, an easy-to-use lifetime warranty, and much, much more. All for thousands less than you'd expect. So don't wait. 
Explore the sets and check availability now. Only at GearWrench.com. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hey there, everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, We are in the district to talk to the people that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch. That is the largest employer in the world. And a lot of those people work in the civil service, where, after the assassination of James Garfield, it's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job. But if you run a business, and you're not the federal government, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead. With Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute, and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash civics. Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. A declaration. So I've been taught that Thomas Jefferson was the author of the Declaration of Independence, but it was co-written by this committee? Yeah, Jefferson wrote the Declaration, to be sure, but the committee made significant changes. Uh, And you can even see copies of his first drafts with their edits. On the Committee of Five were some big names you've probably heard before. Ben Franklin, John Adams... Thomas Jefferson himself, but also Robert Livingston from New York and Roger Sherman from Connecticut. Their final draft was presented to Congress on June 28th, where over 80 edits were made. But then there were two final changes made to the Declaration after Lee's resolution had been adopted. They were made on July 3rd. The first was a removal of reference to the British people, as they wanted to place the blame solely at the feet of the king. But the second was a removal of a grievance that becomes a central plot point in 1776. He has waged cruel war against human nature itself and the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, determined to keep open a market for men. It was a stinging critique on the slave trade. Uh, I'm Byron Williams. I'm- I'm an author, national columnist, uh, adjunct professor at Wake Forest University, and the host of the NPR-affiliated The Public Morality. The Declaration almost had a section that denounced the practice of slavery, but it was removed. The argument for that has been that the primary reason for coming together was independence. And they did not want to get bogged down in secondary issues slavery being one of them. Or, and more to the point, it wasn't a time to discuss the efficacy of human bondage, if you will. Now, you might think that this was a fight between the North and the South, but it was actually a coalition of Southern slave owners and Northern merchants who profited from the slave trade. 
This is a huge moment in the movie when South Carolina Representative Edward Rutledge just takes the North to task. Our Northern brethren, feeling a bit tender toward our slaves. They don't keep slaves. Oh, no. But they're willing to be considerable carriers of slaves to others. It's, first of all, important to realize that already in 1776, opinion about slavery was split. So the Committee of Five that drafted the Declaration was not composed solely of slaveholders. Thomas Jefferson, who chaired the committee, was a slaveholder. John Adams was not. He always thought slavery was a bad thing and never owned slaves. Benjamin Franklin had been a slave owner in earlier in the 18th century, but by this point he had liberated his slaves and had become somebody who was committed to abolition. So the question of where slavery fit in the document was complicated. In fact, the phrase life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness um, is a compromise phrase that takes the language from the anti-slavery position. The fact that the language is about happiness, not property, was um, an anti-slavery choice. Life, liberty, and property, that's John Locke, right? Mm -hmm. That was his idea, these things that government is supposed to protect. This is what you have a right to. So how is striking property and making it happiness an anti-slavery pursuit? All right, so that word, property, and the desire to protect it, had become code, code for defending the institution of slavery. So when you look closely at the text of the Declaration, you can see both the anti-slavery voices in the phrase, the pursuit of happiness, and you see the pro-slavery voices in that erasure of the text condemning King George for the slave trade. But even with the clause about slavery removed, that line that all men are created equal became a rallying cry for abolitionists after independence was declared. So in January of 1777, Prince Hall, a free African-American in Boston, quotes from the language of the Declaration and submitting a petition to the Massachusetts General Assembly um, seeking the abolition of slavery. And the language factors in for other abolitionists as well. And by 1780, slavery has been abolished in Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Vermont. So we fail to recognize, actually, that the Declaration of Independence was also the moment that the project of abolitionism crystallized in the U.S., So the document is not just about what slave owners wrote and thought. It is also about what those who were opposed to slavery wrote and thought. And we see it through the abolitionist movement, you know, through through, uh, uh, Frederick Douglass and and others and and Angelina Grimke and uh, people always pushing for this notion of freedom. And so to be a country that is formed on this idea and part of that idea is freedom. To hold some in bondage is incongruent. That is something that Americans have wrestled with from Frederick Douglass to my eighth grade social studies class. How on earth can a document say all men are created equal but not include women, African-Americans, the native nations, everyone else in the country? Hannah, one potential and disputed reason for this could be that maybe they didn't even really mean it. Woody Holton even called it a throwaway line. The yada yada phrase, all men are created equal, is the yada yada phrase. And of course, it's, I don't think it's that now. That's how we can change the meaning of a document. The, the fundamental right that the Declaration of Independence asserts, you know, it's mostly just a list of complaints. No one ever reads the complaints except NPR once a year. Uh, um, but, but, it's, but the fundamental right that they were contending for 
was the right of secession. All of the stuff about all men are created equal, they're saying that's a, a build up to saying, well, okay, everybody's equal and we got certain rights, and one of those rights is to create governments, but then also to get rid of governments if we don't like them. And we don't like the, the government of George III in Parliament, so we're gone. But before the year 1776 was out, Lemuel Haynes, who was an African-American soldier in the Continental Army, wrote an essay, unpublished at the time, called Liberty Further Extended, where he said, hold on a second. That phrase that you kind of rushed through, Mr. Jefferson, all men are created equal. Let's stop and talk about that a little bit. Others did that as well, culminating in Lincoln at Gettysburg, saying this country was not formed by the Constitution. It was formed by the Declaration. And so what all of those Americans, beginning with Lemuel Haynes in 1776, did was transform a, an, an ordinance of secession into a universal declaration of human rights. This relationship between the Declaration and slavery is frequently addressed. But Danielle brought up a grievance that's very rarely talked about. It was glossed over when I was in school. It's not in 1776. And this is really, for me, the worst moment in the Declaration, the one piece of the Declaration that still, I think, really hurts. And this is where um, they say that the, they complain that the king has excited domestic insurrection amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. And that, the, the, the treatment of Native Americans um, by the colonists really was, um, was reprehensible. And we still haven't fully acknowledged that fact. Um, whereas, in fact, you can see anti-slavery voices in the Declaration. Um, you can't say the same thing about the treatment of Native Americans. You can't see a, a moment of sort of positivity in the Declaration on that front. And for me, there's a deep lesson there because it means that as we think about the values of the Declaration in the 21st century, we have the job of folding into those values a true principle of inclusion, a true principle that embraces all the peoples of this continent in a vision of how to achieve safety and happiness for all of us. Thomas Jefferson said he wanted to write an expression of the American mind. He achieved that, in my view, in a single sentence. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights, and among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So right there in that single sentence, he enjoins liberty and equality as part of the American narrative. I mean, that, I mean, that is, so right there, not based on religion, not based on homogenization, liberty, this idea that we would be a country based on liberty and equality, that in and of itself is profoundly radical, has not, done, has not been achieved before or since, that a country would be formed on an idea. And quite frankly, I think it's a radical idea, and the, the, the proof of how radical that idea is, we're still struggling with it in the 21st century. I mean, each day we can pick up uh, a newspaper, go to our blog of choice, and see where liberty and equality at some point are in tension. And, and that is the genesis of the Declaration. So Byron Williams calls it a radical document. Woody Holden has referenced it as an ordinance of secession. Jefferson called it an expression of the American mind. 
And Daniel Allen says it's a masterclass in political philosophy and a universal declaration of human rights. It sounds like everybody is potentially correct here, right? Yeah. I watched this six-hour video of a panel talk at the National Archives, and Daniel Allen was on the panel and Woody Holton was on it, and the two of them got into a disagreement about the declaration. And Woody said to me, well, you know, the thing is, we were both right. This, this is a document that was built on tension and compromise. And it meant something different to each man who signed it, to each person who heard it, to all who read it. So, we got ourselves a new country. Only question is, how are we going to run it? That's next time on Civics 101. Today's episode was produced by me, Nick Capodice, with Hannah McCarthy. Our staff includes Jackie Helbert, Daniela Vidal-Ali, and Ben Henry. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is in charge of supplying both saltpeter and pins. Special thanks to Loyalist scholar Maya Jasanoff, the Declaration Resources Project at Harvard, and the American Independence Museum in Exeter, New Hampshire. Super special thanks to Jessie Kratz, historian at the National Archives. She offered to tour us around both the archives and the Library of Congress and show us these documents in person. We could not go because the government shut down. Music for this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Scott Gratton, Kevin McLeod, Kai Engel, Micaiah Beats, and Electro Swing. And from 1776, the greatest movie musical ever made. Ah, sweet Jesus. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right when you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.